Mark 8, verse 27. <laughs> now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered him, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. But he said to them, Who do you say I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should not tell, that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Let's pray. Father, how many times have we been at that place where we begin to think that we've started to figure this out only to be utterly confused and so Peter's struggle that we see is really not unlike our own and indeed has to do with an identity crisis. We pray, Father, every time that we have your word in front of us, that your spirit leads us, your words speak, and remind us, God. Some of us in this room, Father, for things that we have going on in our lives, uh, we need these things called reminders. We set alarms. We uh, do yellow post-its. Um, tie things around our fingers. Wear bands. Uh, the most important thing that we need to be reminded of is who you are. And that only happens, Lord, when we are in your work. Yield it to your spirit. Admitting our need for you. We need you. In Jesus' name. Amen. According to Jim Dennison, author of a blog called the Dennison Forum, in a recent article published by the Washington Post titled I'm not passing my parents' religion on to my kids, but I'm teaching them their values. Writer-comedian at a PA known as Jared Bilski grew up in the Catholic Church, served as an altar boy, at one point considered the priesthood. However, Bilski writes, I lost my faith in faith. 
There were too many unanswered questions, too many problematic absolutes, too much fear-mongering and way too much hypocrisy. For a religion that placed such a premium on loving thy neighbor, it sure had a lot of restrictions on whom you were allowed to love. Some of the abuse scandals, well, that was the last draw. And when it broke, Bilski said, I knew I would never return. And perhaps the same lately, when we see some of the things happening in the Protestant church, we could say the same thing. It has left us perhaps disenchanted, disappointed, discouraged uh, in the idea of, quote, organized religion. That's why I love inviting people to Calvary Chapel, Delray Beach. Well, I don't like organized religion. That's fine. We're not all that organized over here. So welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Bilski says in the article, he says he wants his two children to have a solid understanding of all religions and respect for what others believe. He explains, after all, the golden rule is something that should be instilled in all children, regardless of their religion or lack thereof. You know the golden rule, right? What's the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Here's the problem with the golden rule. That's not really a problem at all unless you know who said it. The golden rule belongs to Jesus Christ. And when you take the final authority out of a teaching, you remove, you remove that authority, you remove the final authority, what you're left with is simply confusion when you take his name out of it. And we say, okay, we're just going to present the teachings of Jesus, but we're going to remove the name of Jesus because we don't necessarily want to be offensive. And what's going to happen is, is that you're going to enter into an identity crisis. Denison writes in his blog, the greater problem is that statistically, Mr. Bilski represents the viewpoint of many Americans. Consider the number of Americans who say they have no religion, 23.1% now exceeds the number of Catholics, 23%, and Evangelicals, 22.5%, this equates to 58 million nuns. And when I say a nun, what I mean is this, people that believe in nothing. Okay, 58 million people that believe in nothing. It seems that many people are deciding against religious engagement. Why? According to another study done by Pew Research Center, they asked a representative sample of more than 1,300 religiously unaffiliated people that question. Their first answer was, well, I question a lot of religious teachings, 60%. And second place was, I don't like the position the church takes on these social political issues, 49%. Other issues included, I don't like religious organizations. I don't believe in God. Religion is irrelevant to me and I don't like religious leaders. Some of you can identify even now as you sit in church with some of the expressions put forth in that article. And it would appear as if there's confusion when it comes to the author and the origin of these teachings. And if there's confusion regarding the author and the origin of the teachings, well, then there's going to be confusion about the meaning and purpose of this life. You understand that, right? If we're confused about the origin and the, and the consequent purpose and the author, then we're not going to understand our own meaning and our own purpose. This is going to lead to an identity crisis in the world in general, but that identity crisis will bleed into our personal lives as we're trying to figure everything out, and now we're confused about this book. Well, is it the truth? Is it not the truth? What do I believe? 
That's an identity crisis, my friends. And so here's the thing. If the world's in an identity crisis, it has contributed to your identity crisis, then when a man or a woman finds the truth through Jesus Christ and they find their meaning and purpose, that person can consequently, listen, change the world. Think of a man named Billy Graham. When you find your meaning and when you find your purpose and you understand. And that's why today is so important because so many people in this society are afraid to talk about their faith because they say, well, listen, that's your truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. But listen, truth is truth. And if that truth has to do with your eternal destination and somebody's eternal destination out there and you know the truth and you don't dare to tell them, because they've reduced your truth to your personal belief. And you can believe what you want to believe, and that's your personal belief, but don't try to force your personal belief on me. Listen, if you sitting in this congregation have been made aware, you've been drawn to God, He's touched your heart, and you've become aware of the truth. And that truth determines whether or not somebody goes to heaven or hell. Do you think that that truth comes with a responsibility? But we're only going to fulfill that responsibility and fulfill our meaning and purpose when we ourselves are brought out of that identity crisis and we realize who we are. So let's take a look at our passage. In verse 27, it says this. It says, Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the town of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others one of the prophets. He said, but who do you say that I am? Where did he ask this question? On the road. He and the disciples are on the road again. They couldn't wait to just get back on the road again. Here they were on the road, and they were leaving the place that the miracles had been performed. And now he asks them this key question. And when I thought about it, and I was meditating on it, I thought about this. When you're seeing the multitudes fed, when you're seeing the dead raised, when you're seeing the blind see, it's easy to look at Jesus and say, you are God. I get it. You're God. It's easy to take a look and say, okay, you must be the Messiah because you're doing everything that they said that you would do. But it's that question when we're on the road and we're going down the pathway of life, because it's easy in here, right? It's easy in here, okay? We're a bunch of Christians, and we've got our own struggles, but we came in here today acknowledging our need for Jesus Christ. And so we came in here with the Bible open, and we said, Word of God, speak. We had this wonderful time of worship, singing lyrics to these songs, um, crying them out to God, and it's easy in the church service, in the church setting, to say, you know what? Oh, I feel the presence of the Lord. Oh, I know He's here. I feel so close to God in this moment. But here's the thing. We have to go outside. We have to go outside. We can't stay in here. We can't stay in the building with our Bibles open. Sometimes don't you think that would just be so nice? We need to just sit here and just stay. Just kind of like chill out and just be okay, we're just going to stay here, we're going to be in the Bible, we're going to enjoy food, we're going to enjoy fellowship, and let's just not leave. Let's never leave. 
Let's just stay here and enjoy it. Because as soon as we get out, go out there, probably before we even leave the building, we're going to get attacked. We're going to hear about some tragedy that happened out in the world. And for a moment, what's going to happen is there's going to be an identity crisis. Because when it's here, you're clear. When it's open, we're clear. But when we're out there, sometimes it begins to get a little bit cloudy. And that's where the confusion comes in, because it is so easy to forget when we see the violence, when we see the hatred, when we see the bickering, when we see the pettiness of the human race. It's easy to get confused, because people can be downright petty in the Greek. But then we open up the Word. And now Jesus is compelled to ask them a question on the road. Okay, well, guys, what's the scuttlebutt? All right? What's the word on the street? Who do they say that I am? Well, Jesus, some are saying that you're uh, some are saying that you're John the Baptist, and some are saying Elijah, others are saying that you're one of the prophets. And he's asking this question because listen, when it comes to Jesus Christ, you know this and I know this, everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an opinion. Well, he was a great teacher, while well, he was a philosopher, he was an activist, he was all of these things. He's kind of like a Gandhi, maybe like a Martin Luther King, maybe a little bit like a Muhammad. No. Listen, C.S. Lewis, who was an avowed atheist, an avowed atheist began his own investigation of Jesus. And when posed with the arguments that Jesus was a great moral teacher or simply a prophet, his response in mere Christianity went a little bit like this. Some of you have heard it. It's typically called the Lord, Liar, Lunatic argument or the trilemma. And it goes like this. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Oh, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man that says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman and something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And all God's people said, It's about time. Yes, amen. Amen. That's the truth. But the world is going to have their opinion. So you need to know who he is. You need to know who he is. Even secular historians agree that Jesus Christ walked the earth 2,000 years ago, that he was crucified. Flavius Joseph, who in AD 93 set out to uh, record the Jewish history, well, he acknowledged a couple of times that Jesus, uh, the existence of Jesus. 20 years later, listen to this. Uh, Politicians, Roman politicians, Pliny and Tacitus, wrote of a man 
named Jesus executed under Pontius Pilate when Tiberius was emperor. These were secular historians. Who does the world say that he is? Who does the world say that he is? Listen, in the 1980s, a graduate of Yale Law School turned investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune put his investigative gifts to use to see if the history of Jesus Christ was true. His name was Lee Strobel. Perhaps you've heard of him. All right? Upon his investigation, he wrote a couple of books you might have heard of. The Case for Christ. The Case for Faith. The Case for Easter. The Case for Christmas. You know, okay, when he found out who Jesus was, listen, i got to show everyone all the, quote, evidence as if we needed that. You've got the Word in front of you. You've got all the evidence that you need in this inspired, inerrant, authoritative book right in front of you. So the world has their opinions, but at the end of the day, the most important question that you will ever be asked is the next question that they're asked on the road. Because after they say, well, some believe you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say a prophet, then he said to them, but who do you say I am? Listen, that is the single most important question in this life that you will ever answer. Now listen, if you've ever gotten married, okay, do you take this woman to be your wife, to have to hold Richard Ford, death to his part? Okay, that's a pretty important question. Yes? You're talking about a lifelong commitment. And then you're saying, I too, I will, whatever it is. It's an important question because it's a commitment that you're making before God and man. But listen, the most important question that we can ever answer is who we believe Jesus is because it not only affects what happens to us for all of eternity, but everything that you do out there. It affects the way that you watch the news. It affects the way that you, the entertainment that you choose. It affects the way that you bring up your family, the way that you spend your money. It affects everything. And if it doesn't, then you might not understand because he's called the Lord of your life. When you get to heaven, it's not going to be a matter of what your neighbor believed. It's going to be a matter of what you believed about Jesus. So he says, who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Now, the reason that I had you turn also to Matthew 16 is because there's more to this conversation that Matthew reports than Mark doesn't. That's why we have four Gospels. In Matthew, when he's asked this question, Peter again is the one that answers. It says in verse 17 that Jesus, after, after Simon Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Stop right there. All right? So what we see is a new name for Peter, the rock. <laughs> the rock. So Peter is renamed after he answers this question by Jesus, and it's going to bring us to the first of four points today. 
about our identity crisis. And the first point is a really simple one. The first point says, I know you're already looking at the clock, he's just now getting into the points. Yeah. Just chill. Alright? <laughs> Listen, this is the first point. You can't know who you are until you know who he is. You can't know who you are until you know who he is. See, Peter is only renamed in that moment where he says, okay, well, you are the son of the living God. You are the Christ. And Jesus says, okay, I'm going to rename. Your name is Peter. Peter. And now there's a new identity that is given to Peter because he acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. It never happens the other way around. It always happens after a God encounter, right? When the name is changed. Abram doesn't say, you know what, I think my name would sound better if we added another H. So Abraham or Sarai. You know what, if we add an H to it, Sarah, that would sound better. Paul doesn't change his own name from the hated Saul of Tarsus. The names are changed only after there is an encounter with the living God. Listen, Jacob's name changed to Israel. When? After he had a life-changing encounter with the living God. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, the old things have passed. Behold, all things have been made new. You have been given a new identity when you understand who your heavenly Father is, and you have been made a son of the living God because of the sacrifice of his son on the cross. I know sometimes I go a little crazy with the superhero illustrations, but listen, we'll go there again. It's Clark Kent. When his father's Jonathan Kent, all he knows is this. He can run faster than the other kids. He can hear things better. He can see better than the other kids. But he doesn't know fully who he is until he realizes that he's from another planet. His real dad's name is, is Jarrell, and his name is Kalal. And that's when he is unleashed. Listen, you can only be unleashed in this life when you realize that you have a father, a heavenly father, that loved you enough to send his son to die on a cross, and that he's bestowed upon you as children of God things that you could never imagine. You can go out there, what's your superpower? Love. Oh, that's a superpower out there sometimes, isn't it? That's got to be a superpower. And anybody that has people in their lives that are hard to love knows this. Anybody that has had, listen, this is gonna, this is gonna take some superhuman strength for me to walk into that room and love this person. Or I'm feeling really miserable right now. I feel really miserable, but the Bible says in his presence is the fullness of joy. That's a superpower. If you've ever had anybody in your life that's taken your joy away, or that's taking your peace away, then you know that these things are supernatural. Bestowed upon you by God the moment you repented of your sins, became a child of the living God, and he gave you his Holy Spirit. That's your identity. A brother sent a text the other day with a quote by Charles Spurgeon that read like this, You stand before God as if you were Christ, because he stood before God as if he were you. Charles Spurgeon. 
So let's repeat that one. Okay. <laughs> you stand before God as if you were Christ because he stood before God as if he were you. It's the reason you were created. You're created to worship. How do we know this? Because everybody here, professing Christian or not, worships something. You were created to worship because everybody worships something. Who, what it is for you. Ask the people that are closest to you who love you enough to be honest with you. Do you see that I'm a worshiper of the living God? Because you're going to look like what you worship. You're going to begin to resemble what you worship. For me, for so long it was the theater. That's what I worshiped. It was acting classes. It was modern dance classes. It was jazzercise. It was all of these things, vocal classes that I was doing. And everything was about the next audition or the character that I was playing. And that was my life. That's what I worshipped. Couldn't worship anything else. But when I began my investigation at 29 years old, because I was brought up in the church like so many of you, I started asking questions. God revealed himself to my heart. Michael Dean tells a story about uh, sitting next to a very religious man on a flight from Phoenix. They struck up a conversation, and when the man noticed Michael reading a book on the history of Christianity, and they talked for hours, this other man had an amazing knowledge of the Bible, freely quoting verse after verse, sometimes from little red parts of the Bible. At first, Michael thought the man might have been a Bible professor at some seminary. He must certainly have to be a believer, but Michael began to wonder and had to know for sure, so he asked him if he was a Christian. And the man looked downcast, and he said, I cannot say that I am. He then went on to explain that he was 56 years old and had been reading the Bible since he was six, but for some reason he could just not get to the point of belief. That man knew a lot about the Bible, but he didn't know Jesus. So Michael pointed to him and began to explain the cross and urged him to call on Jesus. Michael later wrote, well, the man told me he would give it thought, and he did right then and there. He then asked why he should put it off any longer. I returned the question, why should you? He was again silent for a moment in prayer, then he lifted his head and said, my wife will not recognize me when I get home. I can't wait to call her. And then with amazement on his face and in his voice, he held out his hand in front of us as if holding the Bible, and he said, I understand now. For the first time in my life, I understand now I think I can explain to my brother the questions he has long been asking me about. Up until that moment, the Bible had always been that story, but now it was his story. Up until that moment, the people in the Bible had been those people, but now they were his people too. Michael said then, he then leaned over a little closer to me, and almost a whisper said, I do not want to let my emotions get the best of me, but right now I feel as if I could run down the aisle and jump for joy. Why not? He got on the plane. He was spiritually dead. But now he had eternal life and he knew Jesus. And it changed everything. See, before you ever find out who you are, you have to know who he is. You have to know who he is. 
Bible tells us of a man named Gideon. For time's sake, I'm not going to ask you to turn there. But let me just read you a little something. Gideon back in the book of Judges. Here's Gideon hiding from his enemies. It's Judges 6.11. It says this. It says, Judges 6.11, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Orphrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So he was hiding what he was doing from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. What? Mighty man of valor? Me? Can you imagine that Gideon was sitting there going, oh, Who are you talking about? You should be talking to somebody else, but I'm not a mighty man of valor. I'm kind of hiding from my enemies so they don't get that what we have. Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? In that moment, Gideon had had a God encounter. And with that God encounter, well, God was kind of speaking into who he was going to be. You mighty man of valor. He wasn't the mighty man of valor yet. But God knew who he was going to be. You can't know who you are until you find him. Back to Mark. Because now after this amazing acknowledgement by Peter, it says here, after Peter said, you are the Christ, he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. But back in the book of Matthew, do you remember what he said? He said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. And here's the second point. The second point is that you can't know who he is until he reveals himself to you. Do you get that, gang? You can't know who he is until he reveals himself to you. You can't know who you are until you know him, but you can't know who he is until he reveals himself to you. A man has to be drawn by God. It says in the book of John, chapter 6, he must be drawn by God. But listen... When it comes to God revealing himself, who did he reveal himself to? Fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes. What eluded some of the smartest people of the day, the most powerful people in the world, God revealed it to these guys. Only they could know it because God revealed it to them. Listen. There are people out there that have entire alphabets after their name. RN, MDIV, AA, da 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 da. They've got all of these degrees and everything behind their name, but if they don't know Jesus, if He hasn't revealed Himself to them, there are people out there that have money. They probably blow their nose in handkerchiefs that are more than some of us make in a year. But if they don't know Jesus, it means nothing. There are people that are so powerful, but if they don't know Jesus, no matter what position they're in, they have nothing. Because you know this, that he's revealed himself to the people in this room. Isn't that nuts? 
Isn't that mind-boggling to you that the King of Heaven revealed Himself to you? How did He reveal Himself? He revealed Himself by His Word, by His Spirit, through people. I know when I was so messed up at 29, and I set out on my, uh, my investigation to find God, let me tell you how I found Him. There were real people going through real struggles with a very real faith. It wasn't people that were sitting there playing church. It was people that were going through the fire, but they didn't smell they were going through the fire, but there was no stench to them. They were struggling, yes. That's how God had revealed himself. Now listen, there's this thing called um, general revelation, and that is the fact that, that you know we can look at nature and we can understand that there's a God. You can understand the attributes of God by simply looking at nature. It's hard to go out there and say that this is not put together by a creator. It's impossible. It's impossible to go out there and say, well, this is the most amazing accident. It would be like a tornado going through a junkyard assembling a jaguar. It just couldn't happen. And so we would all sit there because of general revelation. We could concede that there was an intelligent designer, but unless it was for special revelation, Pastor, what do you mean by special revelation? Well, God choosing to reveal himself in a specific way. Let me give you an example. It's Moses and the burning bush. Moses could have very well said, well, there's a creator, there's a God, but until that bush called him by name, wow. And how did the special revelation come to you? Well, we know in the book of John it says this, John 1, it says, the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we have, and the old theologians agreed with this. They said this, they explored the question by making a distinction between general and specific revelation. God both reveals himself to all people generally through creation, or God reveals himself specifically through more narrow modes of communication, like the burning bush, like he had shown himself to Mary. Even Thomas Aquinas said like this, his idea about general revelation from scriptures, he said, St. Paul says, for since the creation of the world, and this is from Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because this knowledge from reason is imperfect on account of our finite nature and corrupted by our wandering away from God through idolatry. Aquinas explains that something better, something bigger is needed for man to reach his goal of achieving the knowledge of the divine. Listen, he says, in order the true knowledge of God might spread throughout the whole human race, God the Father sent the only begotten word of his majesty into the world, and through him the entire world might come to a true knowledge of the divine name. You can only know who he is if he's revealed himself. He reveals himself through his word. He reveals himself through his people. He reveals himself maybe through a song that you're listening to on the radio. Maybe you were alone and you had a Bible open and you were reading and you were compelled to read it. You saw something and you're like, okay, I'm getting on my knees because I finally believe. Maybe you were going through a dark time in your life and somebody came alongside and they started telling you, listen, you don't have to be hopeless because there is hope. He's a living hope and his name is Jesus. And it was a special revelation that God chose to reveal himself. And so you can only know who he is when he reveals himself to you. 
Now listen. We take a look at this and we say, okay, well, Pastor, I get it. I'm beginning to understand that people could look outside and they could see evidence of God. But what happens if they never hear the name Jesus? The Bible addresses that in the book of Romans, but all I'll say to that is this. Are you concerned about it? If they never hear the name Jesus, what their fate is? And if you are, who have you told lately? If you're concerned about it, I mean, if that's your hang-up with Christianity, well, if they don't hear the name Jesus, they can't go to heaven. Well, then tell someone. Tell lots of people. Because the message is for every tribe, it's for every tongue, it's for every nation. It's like that song that I think Matthew West came out with. When I looked up and I said, God, why don't you do something? He said, I did. I created you. Now go do something. Don't just sit in the church. Don't just sit here. You hear something that changes, touches your life, challenges you, look for opportunities to tell people about it. Some have said that we might be the only Bible someone ever reads. How's their reading when they look at you? Some people said, ow, that hurt. Listen. Peter has a moment here. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine being Peter out of all the other disciples? And now this is kind of a crazy moment to me when I think of this passage, and here's why. Because Peter gets the answer, I know you are the Christ! Come to the front of the class, Peter. You're so good. You're so smart. Now, his brother Andrew's probably sitting there saying, listen, way back in John 1, I said you were the Christ. You know, what's going on with that? But Peter's the one that gets all the credit. All right, Peter's the one that, that acknowledges Jesus as being the Christ. Andrew, as soon as he knew, he went to tell Peter. We found him. We found him. And here's the third point. Because through the acknowledgement of those that Jesus revealed himself to, what you see is men and women that were fulfilling their purpose on this planet. And this is our third point. So, one, you can't know who you are until you know who he is. Three, you can only know who he is if he reveals himself to you. But three, the more you know him, the more you will understand who you are and who you were created to be. The more you know him, the closer you draw to him, the more you're going to understand who you are. It's just the natural progression of things. The closer I get to him. There's this amazing design in creation. It's called a sunflower. How many of you have ever seen one? Everybody, right? You've seen a sunflower. And the sunflower is pretty interesting because the way that the sunflower works is that it literally follows the sun. I read something that said uh, that the sunflower continues tracking the sun even after sunset. It says through 360 degrees, they ensure that they are always oriented in the direction of the sun. Isn't that cool? They're always oriented in the direction of the sun. What if that could be said about us? What if it was said that no matter what we were going through, even if life was turning us on a 180, a 360, and we felt like we were on Space Mountain or on this roller coaster going upside down, backwards, uh, loop-de-loop, whatever it is, what if we could say we were always oriented, no matter where life was taking us, we were always oriented to the sun? 
Because some of you are sitting here and you're saying, Pastor, you know what? Why I'm here is not clear. My counsel to you would seem counterintuitive. Why am I on this planet? I don't know. I kind of feel like I'm drifting lately. My counsel to you will always be to do the one thing that you were created to do. Worship. As a bird was made to fly and a fish was made to swim, so too the human being you were created for worship. And the closer you get to God, doesn't it just make sense? James 4, 8 reads like this. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Is that the closer that I get to him, what's happening is this, is that as I'm reading his word, he's perching a lot of things out of me. As I'm reading his word, and maybe you've had this happen before, where it's like sometimes you feel the word and you're excited and you're encouraged, and sometimes when you're reading the word, it feels like you just got a spear. Oh! 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 You might have been saved at all. I might be a Christian. As we read the word, Things are getting purged out of us. Selfishness is getting purged. Pride, purged. Anger, anxiety. All these things that we experience when we get into the Word, what's happening is, is that God is purging us as we're drawn close to Him. But it is a responsibility on the part of the Christian that has been drawn by God, it is a responsibility to draw near to Him, and He will draw near to you. We see where many of Paul's writings talk about the fact that you've been saved by grace through faith. James now doesn't change the message, but he says, listen, the evidence of your faith is going to be what you do. That's going to be the evidence. It won't be your entrance to heaven, but it will be the evidence that you know the God that you claim to know. And so draw near to him, Christian, and he will draw near to you. And as he's drawn near to you, what's going to happen is this. You'll be doing more of what you were made to do. And the thing that you're even struggling to do, because sometimes we get tired. How many of you have gotten a little worn down lately? Life has just kind of like run you into the ground and you felt a little bit worn down. What do you do? you got to put gas in the tank. Well, listen, if you take the Mustang and you go fill it up with diesel, what's going to happen? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. It might blow. What would happen? I, don't, I really don't know. But it, it won't go far. Okay? <laughs> you won't get where you're going. So if you're running on empty, what you need is you need to do the things that he's called you to do. And sometimes you just won't feel like it. <laughs> but you'll do more and more of what you were made to do when you draw close to him. And even during the difficult times, speak to you today having received a phone call before I got here from my father asking him how mom's doing so I think we're losing her boy to take everything that I have I could just sit there and crumble I actually did I drove over there to see how she was doing make sure that if I needed to and if it was the right time right now I would be uh, saying goodbyes but listen this up here today this was so necessary I had the opportunity to pray with somebody before church today 
I have brothers in Christ that were praying for me. People leaving notes up here saying, listen, your strength is not your own. Whoever wrote that, thank you. Here's the thing. The only reason that we can do that kind of stuff during the dark moments is because he holds us up. That's the only reason. And when you don't think you can go on, not one more step, what he does is he steps in and gives you what you need to fulfill the task in front of you. That's what he does. That's his specialty. And he's an excellent, excellent finisher. Peter goes to the front of the class. Good job, Peter. Okay, only God could have revealed this to you, Peter. But he strictly warned them that they shall tell no one about him. This is Mark 8, verse 30. And isn't that kind of interesting? He warned them they should tell no one about him. But now that you know, now that he's resurrected, that doesn't apply. Go tell everyone. Go tell everyone about him. A few more verses. Verse 31 through 33. Now Peter just got an A in class. Come to the front. You're awesome. Peter. Okay, and now it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Some of you are reading that maybe for the first time and saying, Wait a minute, he told them exactly what was going to happen? Yes, he told them what was going to happen, not once. not twice. He told them actually about three times in Scripture. He told them what was going to go down. Then why were they surprised when it happened the way that it did? They're so surprised. What just, Jesus takes his last breath on the cross. What? What is that? We dropped our nets. We left our families. We left our tax collector booths and we went to go follow him. What just happened? He told them exactly what it was going to happen. He also said after three days he would rise again and he spoke this word openly. Then you got to love this. This is Peter at his best. And this is what gives me hope. Okay, I look at Peter, he spoke these words openly, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Do you see what's just happened there? Peter is rebuking God. Okay, he's just said, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, but I'm, I'm rebuking you. Wow. Okay, I'm rebuking you, but when he had turned around and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Stop right there. It's that moment that Peter gets that you are the Messiah, you're the Christ, and you get an A, and you get extra credit, and then just a paragraph later, an epic fail. Has this ever described your life? Has it ever described your life where you sat there and you're like, okay, I'm getting it today, I'm walking with Jesus, and no weapon formed against me shall prosper, and Christ is enough for me, and, you know, and we're singing these songs, and then the next moment, boom, knocked down. Get behind me, Satan. Wow. I just said that you were the Messiah. Get behind me, Satan. I don't know. Have you ever said that to somebody you love and care about? <laughs> no? <laughs> okay, get behind me, Satan. Okay, watch. Well, things weren't going my way. Get behind me, Satan. Uh-uh. Okay? Get behind me, Satan. 
if you're not mindful, and this is going to be the fourth and final point, you will indeed fall into an identity crisis when you think your way is better than his. When you think you know better than God, that's when you're going to find yourself in the identity crisis of identity crisis. And if you don't believe me, ask the church today in the year 2019. Because the further they get away from this book, the more they're going to get into the identity crisis. Ask a marriage that started off praying and in the Word. What happened when they got away from the Word? You fell into an identity crisis. Ask an individual, what happened? You were walking so close with God, and then you started doing things your own way. You stopped seeking counsel from Him, and all of a sudden, you started losing your way. Why? Because you stopped going to the author who wrote your story. He wrote your story. He knows your story. You know, but he does. He knows your story. And so the closer that we draw to him and the more we worship him, but when we get away from him, you start telling God your plan. You start telling, okay, God, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to date this person. I'm going to be with this person. I'm going to take this job. And I'm going to do this. Is that okay? No, okay. Can you, can you bless that? And then when you don't get blessed, you get upset with him. You don't get the thing that you want, you get upset with God, right? Because it didn't go the way that I wanted. And God said, you couldn't even balance your checkbook right. And you want to tell me how to run the world? Are you serious? So you're getting mad at God because you're looking at the world and you're saying, well, I don't think that should have happened. Don't think that should have happened. God's like, yeah, it shouldn't have. But it did because I'm sovereign and I'm going to use all things together for good to those that love me of that which you are. But you have to go to me because I'm the author. Rather than starting to tell him how to run the entire world because he created everything out of nothing, including the very mind which you used to think and the heart that beats every day. I want to tell God how to run the world. I can't even find the keys to my car. Okay, Lord. Here's, here's how I think you should do it. Okay, John. Great idea. And we go into an identity crisis. So what do we do as a church? Charles Colson writes in his book, How Shall We Live? The solution to the modern day identity crisis of the American Christian. How do we redeem a culture? How do we rise to the opportunity before us at the start of a new millennium? The answer is simple. From the inside out. From the individual to the family to the community and then outward in ever-widening ripples. We must begin by understanding what it means to live by Christian worldview principles in our own behavior and choices, and unless we do, we will interpret the biblical commands according to the spirit of the age and will therefore be conformed to the world rather than God's word. Closing illustration today. So while walking through the forest one day, a man found a young eagle who had fallen out of his nest. He took it home and put it in his barnyard, where it soon learned to eat and behave like the chickens. One day, a naturalist passed by the farm and asked why it was that the king of all birds should be confined to live in the barnyard with the chickens. The farmer replied that since he had given it chicken feed and trained it to be a chicken, it had never learned to fly since it now behaved as the chickens. It was no longer an eagle. Still, it has the heart of the eagle, replied the naturalist. 
and can surely be taught to fly. He lifted the eagle toward the sky and said, You belong to the sky and not to the earth. Stretch forth your wings and fly. The eagle, however, was confused. He did not know who he was, and seeing the chicken eating their food, he jumped down to be with the chickens again and started eating like a chicken. The naturalist took the bird to the roof of the house and urged him, saying, You are an eagle. Stretch forth your wings and fly. But the eagle was afraid of his own known self and the world and jumped down once more for the chicken food. Finally, the naturalist took the eagle out of the barnyard to a high mountain. <laughs> there he held the king of the birds high above him and encouraged him again, saying, You are an eagle. You belong to the sky. Stretch forth your wings and fly. The eagle looked around, back towards the barnyard and up to the sky. Then the naturalist lifted him straight toward the sun, and it happened that the eagle began to tremble. Slowly he stretched his wings, and with a triumphant cry soared away into the heavens. It may be that the eagle still remembers the chickens with nostalgia. It may even be that he occasionally revisits the barnyard. But as for anyone, as far as anyone knows, he's never returned to lead the life of a chicken. You're a child of God. What are you going through today? What are you going through today that's made you kind of forget it? What kind of uncertainty is in your life that you're taking a look and you're saying, listen, if you're in control, I have no idea how to find out what your plan is. Here's what I'd like to do. This is going to be a little something different. They're not aware of it, so. I just want to sing a couple of choruses of something together. And I want to just cry out to you. We're not going to do our, our altar call today. I just want to end this service by crying out to God. And if you're sitting here in an identity crisis, the best way out of it is worship. Whatever it is that you're going through, the best way out of your identity crisis is worship. Can we sing together? Can we cry out to Him together? Father in heaven, thank you. And Father, if somebody wants to sit, let them sit. And if they want to stand, let them stand. But what we're going to do, Lord, is we're going to call out to you and cry out to you through our pain, through our problems, through our struggle, God. We're just going to cry out to you. We're going to sing to you, Lord, because you're good and you're worthy of our song. And no one else is, but you are. Hear our song, God, today. Remind us who we are through your word, through your power, by your spirit, with your people. In Jesus' name.